Today's episode is brought to you by Searchlight Pictures, which is now presenting Theater Camp. Tony Award winner Ben Platt and Molly Gordon star in this original comedy as drama instructors trying to save their beloved theater camp. When a clueless tech bro arrives to run the property, the staff and students band together to stage a masterpiece, the best dang show this town has ever seen. We've got some letterbox reviews from some lucky members who have gotten a chance to see it at Sundance and South by Southwest, of which theater camp was an official selection. Nolan's five-star review says... I think I broke my jaw from laughing and smiling the whole time, and Benton says it has a perfect balance of offbeat comedy and screwball. It's way too soon to say, but let's be real. This is definitely ending up on my favorites of the year list. Silly, fun, ridiculous, heartfelt. Theater Camp also stars the hilarious Io Adebari, Patty Harrison, Noah Galvin, and Jimmy Tatro. And it's in select theaters this Friday, so get your tickets now. Hi, I am Mia Levicino welcoming you to a very special episode of The Letterboxd Show. Our guest today is filmmaker Cheryl Dunier, here to chat about the Criterion Collection's new release of her groundbreaking 1996 film, The Watermelon Woman, which was the first feature ever directed by an out black lesbian. Written, directed, and starring Cheryl herself, The Watermelon Woman follows a young Black lesbian who works a day job in a video store while trying to make a film about a Black actress from the 1930s, known for playing the stereotypical, quote, mammy roles relegated to Black actresses during that period. We chatted with Cheryl about her signature Dune mentories, finding cinematic inspiration from the likes of Julie Dash and Charles Burnett, and how sometimes you have to create your own history. I I wanted to bring up that scene in the film where you recommend um, Cleopatra Jones and Carrie to Diana, and she ends up going with Cleopatra Jones and Repulsion. And uh, I was just curious, can you tell me a little bit about why you picked those films? Well, I love Blaxploitation. Um, I'm a big fan of anything Pam Greer um, did then, as well as all the other, you know, women-led Blaxploitation films. Most of them were done uh, for low, low budget. And... um, still played with, I mean, they were like comics in a way, um, but really focused on and we're, we're answering a call for having um, Black representation, um, be, be that what it was. Um, I guess, you know, I, uh, I'm also a fan of like horror and gore and the thriller and, you know, I just love genre. So um, I think that was what the toss was. They were excellent picks, by the way. And then, um, so in in the Criterion supplements, um, you talked about some of your cinematic inspirations, you know, like Julie Dash, Oscar Michaud, Charles Burnett, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you looked up to them, and now so many younger filmmakers look up to you. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of these historic films and filmmakers and how they made you want to tell your own story. Well, Julie Dash did it, you know. She pulled together a dream um, that few were able to, especially in that time period, um, a dream that was not only, um, educational and beautiful, um, but told, uh, you know, it was about history. Um, it was filling a blank in a very creative way. Um, Afrofuturism, you know, then, you know, for, for, for what it was. And then also that it was done independently, 
Um, and independence, which we think about independent now, was not the same then. That it was scraping together anything you could to make a film, which I, I had to at that point. I mean, there's no Kickstarter. There was no, you know, there were state grants, very small ones, government grants, small ones, public television would give grants and, you know, kind of local community grants to make art. But Julie really went through that system. And I think there's a thing about making shorter work. I mean, Julie started uh, at UCLA and, of course, started, you know, before that, but was in a movement already and kept moving and building on smaller things and smaller things until, you know, she came out with a story. And every story that she's done has been a very creative dig into, you know, a woman-led told story um, about, you know, forgotten history, um, like her first short film, which is about... Um, doing voiceover work in uh, 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 um, cinema uh, in the 40s. Illusions, right? Yeah, illusion. It was dubbed. Uh, and, and that's, we never ever think about that. And passing. So it's like putting things together. So that that's that's my, my love of Julie uh, on that list. Yes. Oscar Michaud, a first. <laughs> um, you know, going out there when nobody was going out there and, and figuring out a, 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 a way to creatively make money um, because nobody else was going to support the, you know, the touring of his work, almost like a, you know, a, a postman of cinema, um, taking it from city to city to city, um, working with all black cast um, with sound, without sound. Um, uh, and, and during a time period when uh, there was no social, you know, that was social justice. That was act you know, affirmative. That was everything that was needed to um, really reach black audiences because there was not, they weren't included other than as mammies and as um, coons and just, you know, all these horrible words. I'm sorry to, you know, say them. Uh, but, uh, but then, you know, figured out a whole financial touring of it. And I think many independent filmmakers like myself, um, would live off of going city to city to city to city with our work at film festivals and film festivals. People don't know that, but sometimes that's the only life your project will ever have, um, is, is showing up at your, your screening in, you know, somewhere in Kansas. Uh, and it's so important. It's so important for people to, you know, see the filmmaker, see that they, what, what their passion is about. And, and especially with a film like Michaud's, see yourself. So that's why Michelle, in, in doing that in the, uh, the 20s and 30s, um, was very important to me to mention. And then Charles Burnett, again, somebody who I would say used people, um, you know, used quote unquote non-actors, but, you know, figured out how to land in a community also from um, the uh, film uh, makers in L.A. from the same school as Julie. And they were in class together, really. Or maybe they're like a year apart. But using, um, A, your, what you got. If you don't have any money, you go to film school and use the equipment. So it's sort of that. And then having film be in conversation with the communities where they come from. So many of his works, um, uh, Killer Sheep in particular, uh, you know, just so powerful by showing real circumstances and, and then building a narrative around that. Like, a, you know, again, playing with documentary um, and, and playing with fiction, but, you know, leaning more on the, the fi fiction side. 
Killer of Sheep in particular is so incredible. I finally saw it for the first time last year because it's it's one of Letterboxd's highest rated films. It's super, super um, high rated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. masterpiece. Um, and then, so kind of jumping on that, that blurring the line between fiction and reality. So you're known for your documentaries, which combines, mm-hmm. you know, documentary and narrative filmmaking techniques that that reveal these deep-seated truths about both yourself and your community. And um, the Criterion just supplements, they, they had a couple of your short films, you know, like Janine and She Don't Fade, right. and they take that approach too. And I, I was really struck because they all result in these works of art that feel more true to life than, you know, like actual 100% documentaries. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious, like, what drew you to pioneer this very, very unique style? I think what really got me into using the tools that I had to tell stories, um, because it was just by any means necessary. I mean, at one point it was a Super 8, you know, or maybe with Polaroid or, or whatnot, making you know, taking lots of images. And the, the pioneer urge was that nobody else was doing it. You know, nobody else was, there was, I was not seen in on the screen. You know, there was nothing, nobody that looked like me that, um, you know, it was not a part of the Cosby cast. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? There was nobody already out there physically as an image because if they did, I would have gravitated to them. That would have filled me up. So that, that number one was why I, you know, made films with my body and myself. Um, I just felt like that was the one character that was missing from the, you know, the dinner party conversation that was happening in, you know, in every film that I watched or something. That was one person that was missing. But yeah, just trying to in- innovate, I think, um, too. I, um, I have an art background. Um, I went to uh, Rutgers and got my MFA. And it was really uh, a place where uh, you were allowed in your studio as your studio practice to uh, create something, to create something new, to use the tools that you have to, you know, play really. So that's why all my shorts were playful. All my shorts were equipment that I had at school. All my shorts were, um, uh, you know, um, so they were made on video. Um, I didn't have any ability to cast folks. So I used the folks I had and I, I, I wanted to tell a story about, not coming out, but because I was already out, but, but, you know, somebody that looked like me and, and whatnot. So, uh, and I also wanted to play with form and, um, was just loving, you know, the new way cinema, direct cinema, you know, cinema verite, just all those styles. Um, and then I saw this film called David Holtzman's Diary, um, shorts in the, uh, the, the Criterion Collection, um, uh, by Jim McBride, uh, shot in the late sixties. And, um, he plays, he's talking to the camera and he's like, a, he's going to, you know, pre sometime during the Vietnam war in the sixties. So it's a young man trying to figure out his life and he's talking about celluloid and you see him getting in front of the camera and sitting down and, and, you know, he goes through this, you know, drama of filming people and then girlfriend breaks up with him, um, breaks his camera and then goes to finish the film in a recording booth. You used to be able to make, LPs yourself, like you would take po- um, photos in a, a photo booth, so you're able to do that. So you hear that at the end as how he finished the film, and then you see credits, and you see that there were actors. And I was low. I was like, "What?" Because I believed. Uh, you want to believe, and I think that's and and that's why I do what I do to play with, um, you know, drama and 
and documentary and, and, you know, activism and, and storytelling and any genre that I want to, people want to believe. They want to believe in a story. They want to have, uh, you know, a full ride. And so that's sort of what the documentary does and why I did it because nobody, you know, does it to, you know, give a full ride for, um, others. Yeah, that reminds me how um, in one of the film's earlier scenes, your character says that um, the film that you want to make has to be about Black women because, as you say, our stories have never been told. And you mm-hmm. are so 100% right, you know, like even when Black women had been featured in films throughout cinema history, they were almost always written and directed from the perspective of white men. And, you know, sometimes they're not mm-hmm. even listed in the credits, like as you as you say again in the film, Hattie McDaniel, mm-hmm. Louise Beavers. And, you know, I learned about this from watching your film. So I was wondering if there are any other underappreciated unsung figures from Black cinema history that you're really passionate about and you'd like to spotlight here for, you know, all these young cinephiles who might be listening. Oh, wow. Um, big question, I know. <laughs> big question. Um, I would say uh, the McKinney's. Uh, Nina Mae McKinney, uh, the actress, wonderful black actress from that time period. That's one big person, you know, as a, an actress, because she was like the golden starlet. Yeah, that, that's somebody I think that people should look at. And, and look at careers, look at movies, look at the credits, and then pick somebody out and follow them through all the storytelling. Um, uh, and, and movies that they even, even if they're just a walkthrough, just look at their IMDb and just go find the films and see them. And also look at um, one place that people don't do is look at public domain. Um, a lot of stuff is on public domain. Um, like my favorite thing right now is to watch public domain films because they're just there, they're free, and they're they're ones that you know some other collections just don't carry. Canopy is a great one. Um, so follow the career of a director. Follow. It's like uh, doing your research. You know, doing academic research. You look in the back and see the bibliography. Like, oh, where this source came from? Let me go get that. So just go down your rabbit holes around cinema and people in cinema and find something, find something that like will drive you to uh, further, you know, enlighten yourself and, and make you greater. Yes, totally agree. And I, I love Canopy. I'm always plugging Canopy. It is free with a library card. Everyone listening, go sign up. Exactly. Like me, I uh, lived in San Francisco at one point, so I had a card there and I live in Oakland and you get 10 free uh, rentals on a, on a card. So I get 20. So I'm like, oh, okay, yay, <laughs> I get 20 rentals. Yes. Library. So, you know, really take advantage because there's, there's, they're missing, like some public libraries had collections that, you know, they bought whoever their buyers were during a certain time period would buy different things. So sometimes um, there are just odd things in there, just really special gems. So just kind of keep looking for the special gems and you will stumble upon, you know, some something that excites you. It's somebody that excites you. Yes, yes. Look to those archives, which kind of leads into this next question, because archives are super, super important with the watermelon woman. And uh, you hired Eve Oishi to be the archivist, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she yeah. And she has a brief cameo in, in the film as well in an early scene when you yes. and your friends go out. Yep. Um, and then you also had uh, the historian Sarah Shulman as the on-screen archivist at the Center for Lesbian Information and Technology, CLIT, which <laughs> right. always makes me laugh. I love it so much. It's Excellent name. Thank you. She's she's showing you this this fake archive that's nevertheless couched in truth. And 
Could you just tell me a little bit about working with these these women, Eve and Sarah? Right. So Eve Oishi was friends. Uh, I think had just graduated. Uh, either was a grad student or just graduated from um, uh, what kind of school? And uh, it was a school in a private school in um, outside of Philadelphia. We were sort of hanging with Eve, and Eve was young. We called her young Eve, but Eve was you know, my age, really. But she was of another um, wave of of, of 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 folks who were part of our little group. Eve was into researching things about um, Asian American culture and Asian American cultural study and experimental film. I said, Eve, look, um, I want you to go to the Library of Congress, literally, and because uh, I can't make it, we're trying to like you know work on the film here and see if you can get an archive for us to use. Right. So Eve went, and this is a point where you, you again, you, it was not online because there was no online to go look it up. You actually had to go. And you get, you know, come with center with money because you had to use a Xerox machine if you wanted to copy something. So Eve went, and I have to get those Xeroxes around somewhere. Eve went down, um, you're allowed to Xerox what's there and found an archive. But it was like to buy that archive or use it or license that ar- archive, it would have cost us thousands and thousands of dollars. I had no money at this point. So, um, we looked at the photos. We started doing, uh, our research in, um, you know, books and he really helped with that, looking at uh, film history, jet magazines, whatever we can get our hands on, um, and helped us, guided us uh, to reproducing it. I said, well, well, we'll just make it ourselves. So that moment with Eve uh, really just changed everything for us, you know, and, and Eve sort of launched that and, and now is a, a, you know, associate professor of cultural studies at um, the Claremont College is the Claremont Graduate University. So Eve is out there still doing that work, you know, which is kind of really great. Um, uh, Sarah was also another friend, but Sarah was, when I st- showed my short films, uh, one of the film festivals that uh, they were screened in in the early 90s was the New York Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. No, it was New York Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. And the big controversy then was, okay, are we going to change it? And Sarah was leading that change to make it lesbian and gay. And there was a big whole thing. And um, also it was a festival where it just needed a change. It had been around for a long time. So in my little group of, of sort of black queer makers, um, there was a woman named Shari Freelo. She actually is at Sundance now. Um, but uh, she sat down with, um, and the other director, I forgot their name, they sat down with a group of, of folks to see what, what film festival was needed and what change were needed because Sarah being an activist and just knowing us, like, how can we change things? And said, like, let's just turn it over. We don't need to have film festivals run by, you know, white academics da, 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 doing work or poet. I need to do other work anyway. Let's, let's see if we can bring in some new flavors. So that's where we get the new fest. Um, so it was really changed by, by Sarah. And I thought that was such a, you know, a, a way to be, you know, like, uh, a socialist about things the way that I want people to live in the world. Like if you, ha- uh, you're running an organization and the organization has people that don't look like you in it, how do you, you know, do that change? You, you, you collaborate, you have conversations and you, you step back and, you know, let them go on. I say that about like a lot of things in the world because some people are holding on to things when they need to, you know, pass the torch down to the next generation or the next community and let them figure it out. Um, so I was respecting that. Um, knew Sarah's work 
and just said, Sarah, will you come in and play with us? And, and as well as Camille, Camille had the yes. big book sexual persona at that time. And, and same thing, let's come and come and play with us. But it was an honor. I wanted to see my community. You know, I wanted the work done by my, I wanted to hear the music of my community. I wanted to, you know, every, it was almost like something that Ava did for me, Ava DuVernay did for me, uh, and, and many other women directors, uh, well, in Queen Sugar, bring in women directors to direct, direct that whole show. And I was just the same way. I want queer people that look like me, people who are um, in my own community of my cultural producing community. I want to see them on screen. When, when would they ever be on screen? So we, that's where we get to Ushi Reagan in the film. Um, Brian Freeman from Promo Afro Homos. Um, he also appears in Marlon Riggs' work. He's another person that people should look up is Marlon Riggs. I don't know why mm-hmm. people never celebrate him enough, but he is really like one of the, the, he strongly before he passed away said, Cheryl, go make your work. You know, so Marlon's mm-hmm. work is amazing. Um, Tongues and Tide and, and everything he's done. There's a big body of work that people should look at. So those were the reasons that I really included, you know, sort of like the academic, the hunt for the archival, uh, in the project. I, I love that fusion of like the academia and just like your real life friends and collaborators and community. Mm-hmm. I just, I think mm-hmm. it meshes really well. And I also really, really admire your commitment to having as many, you know, like marginalized women as possible behind the camera too, because I feel like people sometimes don't realize how much these backstage roles help shape a film. Like I, um, on Letterboxd, you can log and tag films. And I always tag when there's women crew members and for women cinematographers, it's it's bleak. Like I've logged about 2,500 films. Only 122 right. of them had women DPs, which is about 5%. Oh. So, um, and then according to the supplements, you hired a black lesbian DP and a woman editor to make your film because, as you say, you wanted the crew to look like you. Mm-hmm. You just touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to hear more about why this is just so, so, so crucial. Because it is. Because it is. It really is. is. I mean, you know who runs Hollywood. It is. It's like, you know, the one thing I say to people and I say to younger filmmakers and I, and I do it myself is make your own Hollywood. You know, your Hollywood is your community. The Hollywood is your audience. And, and what does my audience look like? And who am I making films for? And who do I, you know, what are those, what are those boundaries and bumpers for me? You know, because it's, I'm never going to be, you know, like a Steven Spielberg, you know, uh, like that's Steven's Hollywood happens to be ours and we pay for it, you know, <laughs> but, um, I know what my Hollywood is. Right. And, and so if you, if you know that, then you can use that to make your world, you make, make yourself, uh, make movies, make anything, make art, whatnot. So I think that's really what is crucial here is kind of just, re- you know, stay right sized, um, about how you, um, you know, make your work and, and, and use your community and, and use folks and in, 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 they're, they're your rock stars. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That reminds me again, like at the, like the title card or not a title card, because it's near the end of the film where you say, sometimes you have to create your own history. Mm-hmm. The watermelon woman is fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that just like hit me like a ton of bricks on rewatch. I, I had actually watched this film in film school for a history of the motion picture class. Um, and, and it, it hit me hard then too, but just over the years as I've learned more and more about history and who gets to tell stories, like your film has just meant more and more to me over the years. So I just, as we wrap up, I wanted to thank you, um, for making it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) And then, um, just for a, for a final fun 
little question. Um, since your character works in a video store, could you mm-hmm. recommend some films to the Black lesbians of Letterboxd who are listening? Um, I would say um, Martine Sims' African Desperate, a fabulous film. And I, uh, Martine is uh, um, uh, on camera on an interview with me because I felt like, yeah. Wow, somebody who did the same thing that I did in grad school and is trying to whatever that's just uh, let's find this woman, you know, and so I, I hope to continue my collaboration with Martine. She's amazing. I watched that interview and I got to speak with her um, at the Independent Spirit Awards. And um, she also told me about some favorite films. She has excellent taste. Just want to throw that in there. Please continue. <laughs> um, I would say uh, Stephen Winter's Chocolate Babies is a, a yeah. big one, too. Um, it was made around the same time that I did. And his own creative, uh, beautiful story, beautiful filmmaking uh, response to his community and, and um, HIV and AIDS in New York. Um, and, 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 and fantastical world. Um, Shuli Chang, who was somebody I looked up to, made this film called Fresh Kill. Um, and I'm trying to think of who was in it. Uh, there were some fabulous actors that she had, but it's talking like, and she just did her own thing. You know, Shuli was a conceptual artist, is a conceptual artist, still is doing work, lives, um, in Europe right now. But that project is just so playful. Another one that was, you know, uh, important for me to, you know, kind of continue making work. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, use archive to uh, pull it out here. One of my mentors who didn't mentor me, but mentored by doing what they do, um, Michelle Parkinson, um, they made a documentary about Audre Lorde. Um, and, uh, and they also made, um, uh, one about Storm Lady of the Jewel Box. It's a short film, um, about, uh, this black lesbian who, um, a documentary of, who emceed uh, the, uh, the Jewel Box Review, which is a place in New York in the 60s, um, uh, pre-Stomo, that uh, did drag shows. And she dressed as a man and, and uh, 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 was the emcee. And so it was like uh, quite amazing for its time. Um, and at one point, uh, you'll, you'll know this character, Stormit, by, uh, I think Diane Arbus photographed uh, her uh, sitting on a park bench in New York, um, all dressed up and dandied up. So that those are a couple of things to like dig around with if you want to look for sort of some queer black stuff. for listening to The Letterboxd Show. Our guest today was Cheryl Dunier, and The Watermelon Woman is now available on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. Fully restored and featuring new interviews, a wonderful essay by critic Cassie DaCosta, and six of Cheryl's early shorts. Check out this interview in written form over at Journal. A link is in the episode notes. And maybe consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps spread the word about the show. Thank you to our crew, our editorial producer, Brian Formo, our booker, Sophie Shin, Sam for the art, Moniker for the theme music, Slim for doing the fun audio and editing, and once again, to you for listening. The Letterboxd Show is a Tape Deck production. This, this, this is a Tape Deck podcast. Thank you.